Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Film Club Podcast, where every month we deep dive into a different aspect of cinema, directors, actors, genres, or franchises. It doesn't matter, because it's always fun at the Film Club. I'm Dean. I'm Boo. And this month, we're talking about movies about movies. And this week, we're talking about... Chaplin. That's right. We're talking about Chaplin, starring Robert Downey Jr., directed by Richard Attenborough, comes out in 1992, and it is a good film. Not something you hear from Dean all the time. I mean, Robert Downey Jr. is just so good in the goddamn movie. He is. He's very talented. He Yes. Very, very talented. He's more than Iron Man. Not his best performance. That's in Tropic Thunder. But this top top three, top three uh, Robert Downey Jr. performances. But it's, um, okay. Uh, I like the movie, but this this was your pick. You you built the month. Yeah, this is my month. Um, kind of weird how all the movies I picked for this month have to do with like silent movies, golden era of Hollywood. Uh, all except like Fablemans, and that was a last minute edition. Yeah, anyway. th- that was because you know we had an issue with the the original movie we were trying to fit into the schedule, but. Yeah, you know, this is a movie I have been wanting to talk about for a long time. Another near and dear movie to my heart. And I got to watch it with you for your first time, what, like, what, five years ago? Something like that. And I, my problem, my problems with the movie then, I think are still the problems I have with it now. Mm-hmm. Now I'm going to make the blanket statement here. I think this is a good movie. All right. This is a four on my letterbox. Mm-hmm. It's in the good category because again the acting is great yeah the production is wonderful you really feel like you're in old hollywood my issue is that this is a very truncated and oddly structured narrative because it's truncating all of chaplin's life into like two and a half hours and it's pumping along like it's a like it's a um you're getting all these vignettes of his like 50 most important moments mm-hmm. of his life without there being a proper narrative through line throughout everything. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it was an originally uh, four cut hour movie. Oh, oh, it's a four hour cut. Yeah, there was a, originally a four hour cut. Uh, they shot over like 200 hours of footage. So I feel like this should have been, you know, maybe at least a three hour, 30 minute movie. Just a really kind of, you know, show the range of his life because this movie takes place from January of 19 or sorry, January of 1894 to April 10th of 1972. So, I mean, we are just going, you know, decade after decade and we're missing a lot of, you know, big moments because they have to focus on some of the really big moments. So you feel kind of like that, ooh, you know, we need to focus on this more, so I guess we're going to have to get rid of, you know, the birth of, like, eight of his children. See, that's the thing that really weirded me out of the movie, because in the movie it's like, oh, you know, because I don't know that much about Chaplin as, like, a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, I knew he grew up, like, dirt poor, and he, you know, oh, American Dream became, you know, most yeah. famous man in the world. But I did, I was, I didn't realize he had ten fucking kids. Yeah. And this movie is, like... He had, like, three children. And then there was, like, all these other ones there that we don't want to talk about. Yeah. And it's and that's, like, really weird. There's the whole thing where they completely gloss over a lot of, like, the controversial stuff he had coming up in, like, the later part of his life. Mm-hmm. There's a whole thing going on with 
like the biographer in this movie played by Anthony Hopkins that's not real. Yeah. Let's say that's totally, you know, fake in the movie. Yeah, and there's there's a whole lot of things that are just kind of like there's a lot of things going on in the movie where they're smoothing over a lot of his weirder like proclivities to just make things easier to like follow along with. That and you know there was also a lot of scheduling conflicts because uh it is directed by Richard Attenborough. And at the time, this is when he was filming Jurassic Park. If you're wondering who Richard Attenborough is, he says the famous line, Welcome to Jurassic Park. He's he's that guy. Yes, he's, um, I, I forget the character's name, but he owns Jurassic John Park. John Hammond. He, John, thank you. John Hammond. He owns the island. So he's kind of a major role in yes. that movie. But yeah, so yeah, Richard Attenborough directed this because i think he wanted it to be like a mini series originally and then because of all the other scheduling conflicts they were like we'll make it into a movie because mm-hmm. there's like four writers on this that tried to truncate two different biographies into them into this movie it's a it's a wild ride it's a wild ride yeah and i mean you know like any movie it's gonna have its issues um i mean even kevin klein he um he brought in uh, one of his children into the world during this time. And he's like, I can't be Douglas Fairbanks. And Richard Attenborough's like, I'll give you like a month. So he's like, you know, meet your kid. And then you're back on the set. So it's like, yeah, you know, it's those little, you know, bumps in life. And it's like, you know, yeah, I could see how this would change up the, the pacing of the movie. But I mean, this movie moves very fast. A little too fast. Because we don't even get to see a lot of, like, you know, when they start United Artists. Yeah, that's an interesting one. They gloss over the founding of United Artists. There's no mention of D.W. Griffith at all. No. Uh, There's no mention of Buster Keaton or Harold Lloyd, who were, like, Chaplin's, like, main rivals in, like, Hollywood during his, like, golden era. We don't see, you know, when Chaplin meets um, Albert Einstein for the first time. There's a lot of these big moments, like when you meet Helen Keller, it's like, you know, these huge moments in his life, but we have to focus on, you know, the film, obviously. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're focusing on his, I don't even know what we're really focusing on. I I guess we're focusing on, like, these are the moments in Chaplin's life that kind of formed him and led to his eventual exile from America. Because really the movie, it's, you know, he's working on his autobiography but it's more like we're drifting in and out of memories that he's having. Like you, know, you do in an autobiography? Like you do in an autobiography. So, you know, you have, um, I can't remember the the biographer's name, the writer. Uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins, because that is his name. No, George Hayden, the, the character. Played by Sir Anthony yes, Hopkins. Yes, But, you know, you have, you know, George Hayden with his, you know, basically his master list of, you know, these are the things that we need to hit. So we're going by, you know... You know, from childhood all the way up till, you know, exile. So it's just, you know, oh, yeah, you know, my mom was on the stage and she was performing. And that's when I really, you know, took to the stage for my first time. Yeah, because the opening of the movie, I, I, I mean, like the proper opening once we actually get to his childhood. Yeah. Like, you get the sense that, you know, oh, he was this kid born for the stage coming in and he was going to be a vaudeville, you know, star. Mm-hmm. And his mom was a um known actress but she wasn't a star mm-hmm. and then as the movie goes on she become it becomes more and more apparent that she has like very serious mental illness mm-hmm. that really weighs on him cuz 
the the whole opening of the movie where we're seeing young Charlie Chaplin, like pre, I guess, 16 or whatever, when he's a kid. Oh, yeah. I mean, he must be like four or five, you know, when yeah. we're seeing him perform on the stage for the first time. Oh, well, I'm talking about like the whole first first act when he's young. You, mm-hmm. That's him. Sh- that's shaping Charlie Chaplin and his view on class because mm-hmm. it really hammers home that, yeah, Charlie Chaplin was born dirt poor, like absolutely broke he was in a workhouse when he was like nine and these all these other things and that was a huge chip on his shoulder his was, entire life he was actually put in that workhouse two times oh really in the movie they show it you know he you know tries to escape the one time and then he you know gets out of there after a year but yeah in his actual life he was in the workhouse two times because you know his family was like okay mom's making a little bit money and then i don't know if she got you know laid off again and then it was like Okay, you can't take care of your kids. We got to put them back in the workhouse. Yeah, it's it's see that's the thing because his childhood is portrayed to be very rough. You know, he it's it's portrayed that he grew up incredibly poor in like the heart of London, right? And I mean, I love that you know they that his childhood is portrayed in his films. Yes, when when you look at you know the the what would be like the the ghettos. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, look, the the easiest one-to-one for what we see in his early childhood, for what we see in his films, is the kid, right? Yeah, I mean, that's like, you know, spot on, the neighborhood. Yeah, it's this poor, poor, like, East End London um, shithole, you know, to, to make light of it. Um, but yeah, it is, like, the movie is making these points that these are the moments that shaped his great works. These are the moments that inspired him. Yeah. Because, you know, when you see the, the children running when they tell him that, you know, hey, mom, or hey, mom, hey, hey, Charlie, your mom's gone crazy again. You know, that's like in the kid where you have all the kids playing out in the street. And, you know, you even have him with the big shoe when he's like digging through the mud and he finds the shoe and he's, you know, impersonating the, the old drunk that's going down the street. And it's like you see all these, you know, Easter eggs of this is who this man is going to become. Yeah. And then, you know, the whole, because that's like the whole first, what, 20 minutes of mm-hmm. it is his childhood. Yeah. And once we get to him, because I think his brother, Sydney bails him out of the workhouse, right? Or get, gets him out of the orphanage or does something. Because Sydney's the one that gets him the job in vaudeville. He does. Um, I know that when Charlie's trying to make the escape from the workhouse, it's because I guess Sydney's age out. And they're gonna put him like on a like on a battleship. He's like you know enlisted in in the, the navy. navy. So I think you know by the time that Charlie has to put their mother into um, like the psychiatric hospital, uh, uh, the asylum, the asylum. Thank you. I think then you know he was probably able to contact Sydney and be like you know I don't have or we don't have any family. You know I need you to come back and take care of me. Basically, there's there's also another thing that is kind of glossed over in the movie because didn't charlie chaplin have another brother they had a third brother they had a younger brother and i think he was like six months old when he was taken away from the family oh okay. so i think they were like reunited with each other like 30 years later so it wasn't this thing where you know he came back in and they just never featured him in the movie it's like no it was he he they met much later in life you know like a whole lifetime later they met See, because that's another thing, because that feels like a, a kind of an important point in his life that's just not mentioned in the I, movie. I didn't even know that till I was doing my research last night. I'm like, there was another brother? Like, whoa. Yeah, and because the movie is really focusing on the fact that Charlie Chaplin had, again, 
a huge chip on his shoulder for growing up poor and his family being this really underprivileged, really... They would have been that family in, in the neighborhood where it's like, oh, the mom's, you know, she might drink a little too much and the kids are kind of on their own. Like, he he's had a huge chip on his shoulder for being that family. But, you know, it, it wasn't like that because, you know, his mom actually was suffering from mental illness. They, you know, were poor. They were hungry. But, you know, this chip that, you know, he had, you know, this could have been, you know, used in a very negative light. He could have become an alcoholic. He could have become a, a drug addict. He could have, you know... But it's like, no, he used this to, you know, launch himself into, you know, standing up for the little guys. And the little ladies as well. Yeah. And we're, we're going to get into we're, that. We're going to talk about that, obviously. Because once he kind of enters in vaudeville, when Charlie gets him out, gets him his vaudeville start, Charlie's, you know, then we finally get Robert Downey Jr. as Charlie Chaplin. And he's playing the grandest drunk in the vaudeville stage. And... He meets a very lovely lady. Um, I Hetty Kelly. Hetty Kelly, right? Who was a real person? I mean, it, it's always weird to you know look at the the cast listing, and it's you know everybody except for Sir Anthony Hopkins is a real you know public figure. Yeah. So you know Hetty Kelly was very much a real person. Uh, was the first love of his life, and it's so interesting that you know never kissed her, never you know you know, made it official as a couple, but she, you know, made such an impact on him that, you know, she would be basically his heroine of all his stories, you know, that, for decades to come. And and that's a thing, because in the movie, they make a point where it's like, okay, she is his first obsession. Yeah. You know, she's like, um, he offers to marry her, and she's like, oh, I'm too young, I'm like 16. And, and he's, he's like, 19. Yeah, and he and you know this is like what turn of the century, mm -hmm. um, you know England. It's like okay, sixteen, nineteen. Yeah, okay, that's like a reasonable age gap for like this time era. They're both you know entertainers. They both kind of know you know I want to, you know, pursue this dream and see you know where it leads me to. And she like turns him down, turns him down cold, yeah. which interesting. And he's like, I'm gonna go to America then, and I'm gonna make my fortune, and I'll come back for you. Um. You pretty girl. Hetty Kelly. Hetty <laughs> Kelly. Thank you. And once he goes off to America, we find, we get, you know, the Hollywood stuff. You know, the movie making, the magic well, picture stuff. he goes to America and we land in Butte, Montana. <laughs> because he, Yes, I was going to gloss over when he fell in love with movies, but it's probably a little important. It's a little important, yeah. Because, you know, he lands in Butte, Montana. Because it's not that this kind of story where, you know, he goes from impressing uh carno that's the name of the guy that leads the vaudeville troupe oh the uh, the the asshole that like ruins his chances with yeah. every with even having the slightest monochrome of having a good time in his life yeah fred carno that would be the man who was a real person but um you know because fred carno takes him into his troupe and he really turns into this slapstick comedian you know physical comedian that you know he's brought over to the states and, you know, I don't think he's even has movies, you know, in his foresight. It's, you know, just I'm here for the stage. And then he has, you know, like our Fableman's moment where he sees his first movie or first Nickelodeon. And he is just in a trance. And it's like, you know, you could see the, the future in his eyes. Yeah, because it is a very interesting thing that the movie is making this point is 
is that Charlie Chaplin pretty much exists at the dawn of cinema, mm-hmm. right? Because when, you know, first time he sees a movie is how a lot of people would see the movie for the first time is in a barn, you pay a nickel and there's some guy just rolling a projector and somebody playing piano and you're watching five, 10, 15 minute little shorts that mm-hmm. people are making in, you know, far off California land. And it is fascinating because Robert Downey Jr. plays it so well where he is mesmerized by it. Yeah. And it's not like he's mesmerized by it like, I can make so much money doing this. It's, how wh- how does this work? Why is this so effective? Wh- why How are you able to tell stories like this? Because the stage doesn't work like this. No. It's, he's He's enthralled by it. And I love that, you know, we see him basically falling in love with film. And, you know... Th- we don't really see him like, you know, trying to make up an idea of, you know, I'm going to get to California any way I can. It's like, no, he receives a telegram because someone saw him portraying the drunk. And it's like, well, I want you in my movies. Yeah. So it's like, you know, this drop in the bucket kind of moment where it's like, you know, wow, someone actually, you know, with power saw me performing and they want to take me under their wing. Which that felt like a movie contrivance mm-hmm. a little bit because i don't know how real that is because it's like no oh, I... the day he fell in love with movies was also the exact same day he was whisked away to hollywood no I, I mean i don't know if it's that exact but it was that you know i think max Sennett or one of his people had seen charlie portraying the drunk and they're like he would be great for you know the keystone comedies uh, well i assume that's correct i was just I was just making a point where it's like, yes, the moment that he saw a film oh, for well, the I, first time, I, Max I, Sennett yeah. is like, you know what? I have the Spidey sense. Let me get this Charlie Chaplin kid in. Yeah, that... That's that, probably that, that, a little bullshit. That, that's probably movie magic, but, you know. But then we finally get um, probably the uh, the best supporting actor in the movie in uh, Dane Aykroyd playing uh, Max Sennett. Dan Aykroyd does a really good job as Max Sennett. It is it is so funny because he has all the little Dan Aykroyd mannerisms, and it is he is played exactly like you would imagine a nineteen forties gangster would if he didn't know he was funny. Because Max Sennett is walking around and he's spitting his tobacco and he's like, "Now you look here, Charlie. There's a thing you got to be funny, kid." And it's and it's and it's great. I love it. But uh, we do get to see. Kind of Charlie Chaplin understanding movies for the first time because yeah. he walks onto the Max Tennant lot in beautiful California, and which is really Encino. Encino, you yeah. know, beautiful Encino. It's still California. Yeah, and he walks into a shot, and Sennett's like, "Oh, don't worry, kid. We'll fix it in post." And he's like, "What the fuck is that?" And he shows him cutting him around and editing, right? And I yeah. love every time these movies about movies do editing and show you the magic of filmmaking. Because that is the moment I think Charlie Chaplin realizes that movies could could do things. Yeah. Because, you know, he's watching the Nickelodeons in Butte, Montana. And he's, he's, and he's more like, well, this is fascinating. I'm enthralled by this. And then when he sees how they work, he's like, I can, I can use this. I can conquer this. I can do this. You know, it's not as difficult as I'm, you know, probably thinking that it is. But it's like, no, you're really, you know cutting and pasting these scenes together and it's like yeah charlie walks into the shot and he's like okay you know give me a couple more frames of mabel and then you know that should solve the problem and then you see you know the the transfer of the two scenes and he's like i can do that yeah and i mean with with the help of agent fox Mulder, anything is possible yeah because you have david duchovny just playing the the projectionist 
or the cameraman. There's a lot of random, like, big-name actors in the supporting cast. Oh, yeah. It's like every time you look at the screen, you're like, oh, my God, he's in this movie? She's in this movie? But, yeah, you know, funny thing is that, you know, we have Max Sennett Studios and, you know, it's surrounded by Orange Groves. We have driven by it before. Oh, really? Yeah, it's still around. It's survived all this time. But, yeah, it's over in, like... It's near like Silver Lake and Los Feliz, so we've driven by it a couple of times. And it's just like, you, you wouldn't think after all these years, you know, because Max Sennett, you know, kind of got smoked by, by Chaplin. Yeah, because, I mean, this whole section of the movie is Chaplin earning his bones and learning how to, like, make movies and all these other stuff. He, he They gloss over, like, the bunches of shorts he made for Max Sennett. And I guess there was also a period of time where he went and he worked in Chicago, because he was kind of like... You know, I'm kind of getting tired of like the the Max Sennett kind of shorts. I want to do, you know, my own stuff. And he ended up getting like a really big pay raise in Chicago and then, you know, came back. And I think that's when he created um, United Artists with Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford. Yeah, because there's this whole thing in the movie because Chaplin comes over to Max Sennett Studios. Max Sennett does like the Keystone Cops, legendary classic comedy stuff. He was like the king of the comedy shorts for like a decade. And him and Chaplin get into this argument. Chaplin wants control. Senate's like, go fuck yourself. And Chaplin's like, well, I will. And I'll take the tramp with me. Because, you know, the tramp character. That's his character. And in the movie, they make a note where it's like, yes, as soon as Chaplin left, Max Senate became a penniless drunk. And, and his life was over after that. And it's like, it's this funny thing where I, I don't know how true it is, but it's like, Yes, the moment after Chaplin left them, their lives were ruined forever. Because that's like everybody in the movie. At the moment yeah. Chaplin is like, I guess we're no longer friends anymore. Their lives turn into absolute ruin and squalor. I mean, I Every know. Every single one. I know. I, th- I think it's in the 30s that Max Sennett got like a, an honorary Oscar because he's another one of these pioneers that, you know, helped filmmaking become, you know, an art form, an actual thing. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, we, we do get that where it's like, you know, boom, Charlie's out and this person, you know, is penniless. Yeah. Shutter the doors, you know, get the whiskey out. Life's over. Chaplin's gone. God has left the building. It's done. But, I mean, I love the scene where, you know, because when he is with Max Senate, he does create the tramp. Yes. And we do get the scene where we see him basically tying the character together. We get uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins telling him bullshit. It didn't, you know, happen in this dream-esque, you know. He describes it as, I walked in and I saw the hat and I knew, oh, there's a character there. And I put it on and then I felt the cane and it almost flew out of the bin and came into my hands. And there I saw it, oh, the tramp, a lovable loser, somebody who, you know, doesn't want to work, wants to survive. He needs to be somebody for the people. And Anthony Hopkins is like, oh, come on, dog. And he's like, all right, I ran around and I kind of threw some shit together because I only had 15 minutes in wardrobe and that's what I found. And that's why, you know, I love seeing him run around wardrobe because people are screaming for him, you know, you're late. We need to, you know, start rolling. And it's just, you know, you see him slowly build the character and it's like, oh my God, you know, that's that's Charlie Chaplin. And it isn't until he trips when he's walking on his way to set. And he gets the walk. And he gets the walk. And it's like, oh, my God. You know, that is Charlie Chaplin come back to life walking down Max Sennett Studios. See, that's the thing. Because Robert Downey Jr., great actor, fine Mm -hmm. actor, wasn't convinced until that moment when you see him do the walk. Mm -hmm. Because up until then, he's just playing 
okay, he's playing slapstick British man, right? Yeah. Once he does the tramp walk and you see the first Max Senate tramp short with like the wedding and all that stuff. Where he really lets him just go. Yes. That's when I'm like, oh no, Charles or no oh no, Robert Downey Jr. has really tapped into the essence of a of the Chaplin performance. The physicality, the pantomime, the the character well, of I, Chaplin. I think Robert Downey Jr. spent eighteen months studying Chaplin, studying his movies, his uh, mannerisms. I think he um, he got a coach from like the vaudeville days to teach him how to basically walk and fall and do all these, you know. Probably not the vaudeville days because they would have been either a hundred or dead. No, but I mean like, you know, someone that was, you know, trained in the vaudevillian, you know. His styling. Styling. Mm-hmm. I think he had worked with like, you know, Benny Hill. So it's like kind of to put him in that, you know, range where you know okay this is how you drop this is how you use your body and then i had read somewhere that i guess over in london one of the museums has like a full tramp costume yeah yeah there's a few of them still hanging around and you know i i guess robert downey jr was able to talk to them and say hey i'm gonna be in this biopic about him you know can i at least try on his clothes or i think it was his coat right no, he was able to try on, I think, the full costume. The full suit? The full suit. That and thing's got to be, like, old, older than his father. And he fit in it. That's that's interesting, because Chaplin was not a large human being. No, he, he was on the, the shorter scale, but, yeah, he fit in it, and he said that he had put his hand in one of the pockets, and he'd found, like, um, half of, like, a cigar. Like, something <laughs> that he'd put out, and it was just like, you know, if, if you want your blessing from Chaplin, there you go, you know? You fit in the suit, so, you know... I give it to Robert Downey Jr. You know, he really put in the work to become this person. Yeah, like, say what you... It's it's probably not a 100% accurate Chaplin, right? Like, you know, Chaplin to Chaplin, it's a movie performance, but it's a moving performance. It's such a good character he's playing here. And I mean, you know, the fact that you have a real Chaplin that's on the cast of Chaplin... Uh, yes, yes, I believe Chaplin's oldest daughter is playing the, the Robert mother. Downey Jr.'s mother in the movie. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah Geraldine she, Chaplin? Geraldine Chaplin. She portrays her grandmother, Hannah. Mm. And uh, yeah, you know, you have a, a Chaplin on the cast and she was, I had to look to see, you know, where she fell in line. Yeah, she's, I think their first daughter, his yeah. and Una. And it's just like, you know, it being a trip to meet someone from the Chaplin family, but then to, you know, that's your father and to see this man that looks like your father on your father's studio i'm like that's just yeah because i'd imagine it's it probably a little surreal because i mean i i looked up um some stuff about like chaplin and his family because again i'm like he had like 10 fucking kids and eight of them came after he was like in his like when he was 55 i think and i was like i was curious about it i guess his later kids didn't really have a very close relationship with him because probably because he was just so old right yeah it's it's hard to play you know like you know catch with your dad when he's in a walker kind of thing it was also a thing where you know by that time because i guess he was still you know wanting to do movies because we have like you know uh, Monsieur Rudeau, um, Limelight, King of Kings. Oh yeah, uh, uh, the King of New York. King, King of New, New York. York. There you go. And then the so, one he did with Brando and um, oh god, 
Uh, he did one with Brando. That was like his last directorial effort. So, you know, he was still acting, but I guess he was having strokes. Yeah. And it, and it was affecting his everyday life. So he had to retire. So I can see why, you know, that might have been a strain on his relationship with his kids because, you know, you're not feeling well. You're getting older. It's kind of hard to keep up with with children and it's also a thing you see in the movie and i'd imagine this is probably a accurate portrayal he comes off as kind of a cold person he's a very perfectionist workaholic kind of guy that's not a very um easy person to get along with which we see kind of coming up now because you know he leaves max senate he's gonna go and he's gonna start making like moving pictures yeah because you know he part of him leaving max senate is that Sydney, his brother, his older brother, and his wife arrive in America because now he's making money. You know, they could come here and live with him. And it's, you know, well, my brother's going to be my manager. This way, you know, I can focus on writing, directing. The creative aspects. Composing. And then I have my brother, you know, that makes my deals for me. And uh, we meet his first wife. Yeah, I mean... (laughs) So do, do you want to broach this topic now and just make the blanket statement that it's re- it's weird as fuck, but it happened? Yeah, it's it's very weird. Um, so, uh, Mr. Charlie Chaplin, this is true to life. He had a thing for teenage girls. Younger women. Younger women. Um, His first wife was 16. He was 32? He, he was 28 or 29. Because I, I know they make a point of it, you know, they're like, Charlie, you're... you're barely 29 and you've already made like you know 30 movies and then you know yeah you you see the the whole kind of you know back and forth with him and douglas fairbanks you know oh yeah you know you're with this chick she's nice i guess you know can't put a sentence together but you know she's all right yeah and it's a thing because his first wife is like 16 his second wife is like 21 his third wife's again like 16 yeah, it's a thing where he had a thing for, like, much younger women, and even his his wife, Una, I think she was 18 and he was, like, 50-something. Yeah, that was... A little big of an age cap. Yeah, and I mean... <sighs> and it and it's a weird thing, because he fooled around a lot, because there's a point made later on that he had, like, an affair, um, I guess, like, before Una and something. Oh, and yeah, with uh, Joan Barry. Yeah, and he had a very complicated relationship with women in general. There's reports of him being maybe not like a, like a, he wasn't like a hitter of, a, like, like that kind of abusive, but he was generally kind of a dick to people. You know, because I, I think his second wife, he was, he described her as just an upfront bitch. Yeah, and he was not a fan of her, and they yeah, ha- and she had his about, first kids, you know. Yeah, his first set of twins is you know with Lita Gray, and she was in the Gold Rush. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, it's such a funny line when he says it, you know, uh, to Anthony Hopkins. He's like, "Well, you know, you barely talk about your first wife." There's five lines, and he's like, "Well, she was an upfront bitch," and it was just like, so it's kind of like you know, I think with him, he's got that like dry British sense of humor. So it's kind of like, that's where, you know, some of this feels like, you know, some people might take it like, oh, wow, he's being super harsh. But I think he's just being very dry. I I don't know, because it feels like, I, I mean, again, we're we're going to get into this whole thing. He 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 was a little predatory on some of the on some of these women. Yeah, I mean, uh, his first wife is Mildred Harris, who's played by 
Mila Jovich in this movie. Mila was actually 16 when she filmed this movie. And, yeah. you know, we have that scene where uh, she disrobes for him. Mm-hmm. And this was before... Um, it was before the, laws of um, nudity for ch- for like younger actors was finalized. So and after this, it, it bumped up to 18 where you could do this. So you really feel like, you know, yeah, she is 16 and she is getting into this relationship. And it's altered in the movie because, you know, in the movie they make it that there is no baby. Yeah, she lied about the pregnancy, which is not true. No, there, there was a baby. There was... Um, health complications i think he only lived to be like three days yeah and then he passed and i think their marriage only lasted like a year or two i mean i don't know if it was it lasted that long because of you know documentation and the time that it was but there's also a thing where you know this happens throughout chaplin's life i think any time he um we'll say it knocks somebody up he marries them because there's a thing where i think his third or third wife like he was afraid like he knocked her up and they got married in mexico and with this he it's um it's lita gray that that um because hoover's you know after him and he goes oh well he married her in mexico so this is the second wife it gets confusing because i think paulette goddard is the third wife yeah because he but a lot of these marriages only lasted like a couple of years. Yeah, Una's the only one that lasted very long at all. Through his death. And with that, it's it's one of those things that's a really complicated thing about this guy because he was a great artist, but he was a Woody Allen level creep. I, I don't think I'd, I'd put him, you know, in that territory. No, I mean, you know, I don't agree with, you know, the underage, you know, marrying of these girls, but I, I wouldn't put it with Woody Allen. And I mean, in the movie, you know, it, it feels like He's trying to find Hetty. Yes. And it's like it's like he's stuck in that moment. He is that 19-year-old that is out in front of that cart proposing to this girl. And it's like he's not realizing that he's aging. And they make a point of it saying that, you know, that time is his worst enemy. That That's one of his quotes. And it's like it feels like, you know, he's looking for her. And it's like, you know, oh, there's this, you know, 16, 18-year-old girl. This is her. This is her. And then it's not till we finally get to Una, who, you know, Una plays, or the actress that plays Una and Hetty are the same actress. And, you know, he's like, you know, I've been waiting for you. It It's a thing where it plays into the fact that Chaplin was an obsessive human being. Yeah. And, it, it, and everything had to be perfect. Yes. And, you know, with his first wife, um, you know, the, the child died. And the movie doesn't even mention that. No. And that is the precipice or not that's the pinpoint moment as to why he makes his first feature the kid the kid yeah and that movie uh, you've seen oh the kid i assume God. i i can't watch the kid the kid really it's it, so good no it's a great movie but it breaks my heart oh but it's so funny it, it's and it's got fu- a nice lovely ha- ending and well, all this it, other stuff yeah but i mean I'm you gonna know keep talking like this because it's so nice uh-huh but you know it just you know it breaks my heart it, it's a wonderful movie it has some of the best gags in it. I mean, you have Jackie Coogan in it, who grows up to be Uncle Fester on the original Adams Family TV show. And it's just, you know, the the connection that the two of them have to each other. You know, it feels authentic. It feels like, you know, he has taken in this little boy to be his own child. And you kind of see, you know, this could be Charlie trying to remedy that he had just lost a child. And at the same time, he's remedying 
the father that he never had. An- another thing that was a huge chip on his shoulder. Yeah. His, it, it feels like Chaplin had all these obsessions that, you know, plagued his life and it drove him crazy and he spent all of his money and creative energy trying to write them in his fiction. Yeah. And after his after the kid, you know, he has to go off to like Salt Lake City to edit it and get it released and everything. Yeah, because they're they're trying to seize the picture for him. And I love that, you know, they're just we gotta cross state line and we gotta do this in secret and the police are after us. And, and they have a whole Keystone cops little little spit right there. They have the whole bit. They have um uh Charlie in his sister-in-law's clothing, running around from the cops. He ends up in his bloomers. And it's just, you know, it's very silent picture slapstick comedy. Uh, and, you know, it doesn't happen enough in the movie, you know, if I say so myself. <laughs> but after after that section, this is where it gets really fast. Because yeah. it this is where it starts, like, speed running. Like, basically, you speed run all of Charlie Chaplin's 30s and 40s in yeah. very quick succession. Uh, because, like... He marries his second wife. She has his two kids. He makes the gold rush. He makes, um, like, I think he makes uh, gold rush, city lights, modern times. And you completely gloss over the fact he starts up United Artists. We we get one scene with Mary Pickford in this film. No, we get uh, two. We get the the first one at the party, uh, the one at dinner with Hoover. And that's when she's the one that kind of, you know, breaks it to him that the the marriage that he's in is a sham. Yeah, because which wild to me. We get two scenes with Mary Pickford. We get like a f- we, we get a few with Douglas Fairbanks. Zero with D.W. Griffith. But I mean, you know, with... you know, going with actual history, the three of them went around to sell war bonds. So yeah. it's like, you know, we missed a ton of, you know, their history together. Yeah, like there's there again, there's a lot of very there's a lot of very important things in his life that are just kind of glossed over mm-hmm. for brevity, um, obviously, but it's a thing where it's kind of weird that it's just never mentioned because I think they mentioned, oh, so or Anthony Hopkins like, so then you started United Artists and then you really had control. And Chaplin's like, Well, yes. And then proceeds to never bring it up again i don't think they ever mentioned when he leaves united artist either there's a lot of stuff that isn't mentioned and i think you know a lot of that's probably in that four-hour cut yeah it, again this feels like and it's the criticism i have with it this feels like a super cut of a five-hour miniseries that is it's like this feels like this should have been you know a four five six hour miniseries that they were like we gotta trump it all down truncate it all down to a two and a half hour picture. Yeah. And apparently Richard Attenborough had a two hour, 40 minute cut, two hour, 50 minute cut, mm-hmm. like a like a substantial cut of this movie that he was like, this is my theatrical cut. This is my director's cut. And they trimmed it down even more. Mm-hmm. And he even felt that the one we got is missing too much. Yeah. And it's like a thing where it's like, God damn it, if Robert Downey Jr. wasn't so goddamn good in this movie, I'd be more mad at it. I mean, you know, he put in the work. I mean... Because Charlie Chaplin was just so talented in so many different things. You know, Robert Downey Jr. learned how to play the violin to play this movie. He learned how to play tennis left-handed. I don't, I don't and it's just be, like, my God, you know. I don't want to be rude to Mr. Robert Downey Jr., but the one scene where you hear him actually play the violin, it's a little rough, right? Hey, better than someone that, you know, doesn't know what they're doing. And, yeah, I'm just holding it for, you know, this scene. 
I, I, I know, I know, but I'm listening to it. And I'm like, that's a, I know what good violin sounds like, and that's a little rough. Hey, you homie, know. if you want to bring in a violin next time we record and, you know, try to break down. D- down. Hashtag All down. All right. We'll, we'll be waiting for that next episode. <laughs> uh, but, um, God, it, it, it is a thing because it's the prime years yeah. that are glossed over. Because you, you, we do not slow down until Great Dictator. And, Everything and from could that could that be you know also stylistic because I know we feel like a lot of things are missing, mm-hmm. but you know in this uh, the prime years of Charlie's life when he's you know married to Paulette Goddard, and it's like you know they seem like a perfect match for each other because she is she's on his shit she's like you know she's also of age she's also of age too and I love that she makes a joke about that at it you know at him, but it's just you see the rise and fall of their marriage and just how, you know, when he is working, nothing else matters. And, and he works a long time. And it's not like, you know, he's being malicious about it because, you know, when he sees her, he's, you know, very loving and, you know, like, oh, this is my wife. You know, yeah, it's not like, you know, get out of here. Don't look at me. Don't talk to me. It's it's not uh, Jack Torrance from The Shining where he's like, you know what happens when you come in here? I lose my place and I can't work anymore. And he starts yelling at her yeah. like she's windy. Yeah, you know, he, he plays um, Smile, the the song that he writes for modern times, but it's kind of like their thing. Every time she shows up, it's like, you know, something clicks in his brain and he starts playing it for her. And she's just like, you know, have all of your marriages been like this? And he's like, you'd have to ask them. And it's just like, it's heartbreaking that it's just he's so dedicated to his craft that the people in his life don't matter when he's, you know, creating. It's it's also the thing where he was he was a perfectionist mm-hmm. and his movies also had a lot of issues for the sole purpose of it was it was it was his worst enemy and his greatest strength. Yeah. Was Charlie Chaplin had infinite money essentially. Yeah. He funded all of his own movies. Everything he made, he owned. He Wrote, put... directed, produced, composed. Yes. So he had complete creative control, which sounds like a godsend, but it also meant that he, any idea he had, he shot. I think for City Lights, he shot, I don't know, 32 hours of usable footage, like, in over the course of, like, th- like two, three years. And he just never stopped, and he was like, "Screw it! Like, you know, I'm I'm paying for this. Mm-hmm. We're gonna film every idea I have." Yeah, he would shoot. I think everything without a script up until the Great Dictator. Great Dictator is the first completed script he had ever written. Everything else was, we're gonna have the tramp go to a gold mining town and have a, a fling with a girl, and then he just made up the gold rush on the fly. For like the three, four years it was in production. And that's a very, very dangerous way to make a movie. Because as you see with his relationship with people, it means he has no time for anything else. No. He is full-blown like, I'm an artist and I have no boundaries. Thus, every fancy is at my control. And that is, I feel his greatest enemy is his greatest strength of control. He's he's a guy who's incredibly controlling of his art, and that means he lets his personal life just spiral. Because he doesn't... Because he can't control, like, real people, I guess. 
it's, it's he's such a complicated figure and it's hard for me to pin down the one flaw of I Chaplin mean, that breaks him. It it's the struggle of any artist where you know when you're inspired you got to run with it, you got to take advantage of it, but it's also hard to stop what you're doing. Because, you know, once you're in it, it's like, you know, no, I want to keep going. I want to push the envelope. I want to see where, you know, this could take me next. And then it's like, you've got the real world out there where it's like, we need attention too. And he didn't know how to shut it off. It was, you know, I got to work, work, work. And, you know, he does, you know, early in life because he's trying to, you know, sock away money so that, you know, he can bring his brother over. He could buy a house for his mother, you know, just so he can have, you know, enough money in the bank to feel comfortable and he could start producing his own things but he never got off that grind yeah that was a problem with him was he was a workaholic yeah and that's what this whole middle section of the movie is right and i know we're kind of going on these weird tangents but that middle section of the movie is really just he makes like four five six bangers yeah banger silent movies and two of his his next two marriages kind of fall apart because he is so obsessive. And then in during this time, J. Edgar Hoover gets it involved. Is on his ass. Is on his ass for, it's never really stated why. I Okay, well, in the it's, movie, it's because, you know, oh, Chaplin slighted J. Edgar Hoover at a dinner party, right? Well, we have the dinner party, and this is when he's married to his first wife, Mildred Harris. But, it, you know, Charlie's being Charlie because... Hoover is just going on and on and on in this speech that he's making at the dinner table. And Charlie's doing his infamous, you know, bread dance that we see in the gold, in rush. the gold rush. And it's been, you know, used in so many movies afterwards. And they're like, you know, you have to excuse, you know, Charlie, you know, he's a creative person. And when the creative creativity strikes, he goes with it. And that's when Hoover's like, you know, yeah, you know, strikes just like in the immigrant when you kick, you know, the immigration officer up the backside. And it's, you know, it's an issue, you know, Sydney makes that issue, you know, we're guests here and you can't be doing this, but this is Charlie standing up for, you know, the people that do get kicked around in life. And he's like, you know, you know, I kicked someone else, you know, someone in the higher society to kind of prove a point that, you know, you're not better than I am. It It is the thing where Charlie Chaplin, he was famous for being silent because he was the tramp mm-hmm. in real life. He ha- he never shut the fuck up. No, he always, you know, voiced his opinion, stood up for himself. And I like that he makes that point with uh, Una, where, you know, it's so hard to grow older because you can't protect yourself. You can't defend yourself. And it's like, you know, having grandparents that, you know, had to be, you know, in nursing homes. And, you know, I've seen them, you know, up until they passed. It's like, yeah, you know, that's a scary thing where, you know, these people took care of me. And now, you know, I have to take care of these people and make sure no one takes advantage of them, no one hurts them. So it's like, I could totally see that this strong man that, you know, has fought for his feelings and his opinions. Yeah, it's kind of scary when that gets taken away from you. Yeah, and it's a thing where that's a major point for Chaplin is he, in the movie, again, I, we're not speaking about the real guy. For, for no. all we know, he probably, he, he could have burned American flags for all I fucking know. But in the movie. But he, he wouldn't did, because he loved America. Well, we'll get into that. Um, in, the, <laughs> in the movie, it's portrayed that he is a guy who was incredibly opinionated and he thought America had its flaws and he was a political commentator through his art. And Hoover had issue with that. Mm-hmm. 
because modern times is a pretty big critique of like industrialization mm-hmm. and capitalism and how you know oh america is turning into a society that can't really take care of its people because these machines are going to put people out of work and he, you know cue the the latest writer strike exactly and then he does you know um he also does movies like uh monsieur Voudou, which mm-hmm. is later on but that that i think is the movie that got him kicked out of america cuz at the end of that movie he's like oh you know so i killed one woman did you know your government killed a blah, blah, blah million people during the war? And you, you are just numbers on a thing. Where he basically goes on a whole little speech mm-hmm. about, hey, yeah, I might have killed one guy, but your country killed 100,000 and no one's in jail for that. Almost like the war wasn't worth it. Mm-hmm. And that's like in 1947, like we're two years out of the war. And that's some like, bro, there are there are war vets that are going to have fucking issue with you calling that shit out give it like a little time here yeah and i mean it's the same like with uh the great dictator when that came out and you know which okay i i I might be trying to sound like i'm you know calling out charlie chaplin for being opinionated the great dictator is a fucking masterpiece i love that and i mean that's why you know with i'm sure most of you though it's probably you know again you know he's being opinionated but he's also being you know satirical Just like in The Great Dictator, where a lot of people still, they, you know, they still don't understand that he's being satirical. He's mocking Hitler. Yes. And it's like, you know, you have one of the best speeches ever in a film. It is one of the most well-performed speeches that says some of the most broadest humanistic concepts that are a little conflicting. He's like, you must be an individual, but we must all unite against those who don't want us to be individuals. And it's... But God damn it, he sells it so fucking well. Yeah, I mean, you know, because you have to sit there and you have to listen. You know, you must be your own individual person, not like the Nazis were, where it's, you know, this one-track mind. But if you have to fight and protect your individuality, you got to band together. And that's why, you know, we get into the scene where the Nazis come to Hollywood. And -hmm. we have that party where, you know, he's separated from Paulette Goddard. But they're still kind of maintaining that they're married or are they not married? Just so you know, because they enjoy each other. They're still, you know, hooking up. It's this thing where it's like. It's also a thing where Chaplin was rife with controversy at this point. And he's like, can we just please not let anyone have another fucking tabloid scandal? I'm really tired of this bullshit. But, you know, we have that party where, you know, the Nazis are there and they're trying to, you know, kind of make their dig into Hollywood and they're trying to sell people over and you see people that are fully buying into this man that's just, you know, the stupid lady. She's like, you know, do you know, you know, Adolf person? He goes, yes, yes, I do. And then you have Charlie, you know, being Charlie where he's like, I don't shake hands with Nazis. And I'm like, fuck yeah. Thank you, Charlie. It It is a really good scene of Charlie Chaplin being like, you know what? Hitler's kind of kind of a douche, and you are one too. And and because his brother was half Jewish. Yes, and everyone thought Charlie Chaplin was Jewish for a long time because his brother like identified as being half Jewish. Well, no, his brother was half Jewish. They're they're step or not step brothers. They're half brothers. Yeah, but so, but I, it was a thing where his brother identified as Jewish, so everyone assumed Charlie was yeah. as well. And then that's when we get Charlie, who clarifies it in this movie. Where he's like, I don't have the privilege of being Jewish. 
you okay and that's like that's a great line fun fact so that line i don't know if it's for real for charlie chaplin but it is for real for uh one of the greatest writers of the 20th century uh jrr tolkien because when he published um the hobbit right Mm -hmm. he owned like rights to it and they wanted to publish it in Germany. Mm-hmm. And the um, <laughs> Joseph Goebbels himself contacted J.R.R. Tolkien you know, through letter mm-hmm. and asked, we want to make sure that um, The Hobbit was not written by uh, any anyone of the Jewish persuasion, Mr. Tolkien. Can you clarify so we can um, confirm the publication of your book in Germany? And he responded back in um, basically a, I do not have the privilege of being a member of the Jewish uh, race, but if I were, I would be proud of it, and I would wear my Star of David proudly, and I would still tell you to not publish my book. But since I am not Jewish, I will tell you again: do not publish my book, for I do not enjoy Nazis reading my work. Damn right, J.R.R. Tolkien. I am paraphrasing a very long um, letter, long letter written by a uh, professional linguist. So. But yeah, the, I, I love that little bit because mm, I love I love it when people make fun of Nazis. Hate Nazis. And you know, Mel Brooks made a career of making fun of Nazis. He did. Still does. But you know, this is also the same party where we see Douglas Fairbanks for the last time. Yeah, and we kind of glossed over that Douglas Fairbanks and Charlie Chaplin were like best friends. They were homies. Yeah. In Douglas Fairbanks, we mentioned this when we did the artist. Douglas Fairbanks was, like, the the guy. He was the Brad Pitt of, like, the silent yeah, era. Yeah, he was. He, biggest action star, um, huge leading man, could kind of do no wrong. I think his first movie was with D.W. Griffin, or Griffith. Yes, and look, I can get, we can get into a long discussion about Griffith, and I know people might be thinking, why does he care about that racist guy? He's really important into this era of Hollywood. Like, yeah, really into this era because, because you have Griffith and then you have um, Chaplin for comedy. So you yeah. have these two, you know, because Griffith was drama, right? Well, Griffith, well, here's the thing. Griffith started in 1915 with, like, Birth of a Nation, mm-hmm. uh, which I will make a blanket statement. Birth of a Nation is not a good movie. It is not very entertaining. It's probably the most racist film ever made. Um, it's important because of a lot of historical things centered around it that have been conflated. But Birth of a Nation is, like, directly responsible for getting, like, Buster Keaton into making movies, Orson Welles into making movies, um, Joseph von Stroheim into making movies. Like, it's it, – the reason it's so important is because a lot of silent era filmmakers and early sound filmmakers were like, who's the greatest director of all time? And they're like, well, have you seen D.W. Griffith? That guy's a fucking, like, cinema god. And I think it's weird you're making a movie about Charlie Chaplin where he had business dealings with the guy that is just not mentioned, you know? Again, I think, you know, and, just and not also, enough time. Not enough time and, you know... A lot a lot of other things. Well, yeah. yeah, a lot of other, other things with the other guy. But, you know, it's... I felt like, you know, we missed out on a lot of, like, Douglas Fairbanks. Yeah, not uh, enough Mary Pickford. Not no. Definitely not enough of Mary Pickford. Uh, we don't get... I, I am so annoyed we don't get any Keaton. And we don't get any Harold Lloyd because they were his main rivals. Yeah. And we don't get... I think we have a walk-on cameo of a um, of a um, Laurel, uh, Laurel and Hardy in this. Yeah, no, I looked it up. There's somebody credited as Stan Laurel in this. And they don't have a scene in the finished product. 
So I'd imagine it's hmm. a walk-on cameo that's just never made point of. But it's like there's all these people yeah. in his like circle that's just never mentioned or broached. There's no point where he's like, oh, I might be losing my touch or, hey, these guys are coming up like – like Keaton made like the general like that's insane like well, I mean we what have we it do here we have it in one of the scenes when I think it's right before he goes plays tennis with uh Douglas Fairbanks so they're gonna play tennis but he goes to pick up Charlie on the set it's when Charlie's you know the tree yes yeah and you know they're they're exploding things and you have that moment with Charlie where you know he turns and he's just like I don't feel funny anymore so we do get that sense in the movie. Where, you know, because he already has so many shorts and movies under his belt, Mm -hmm. that it's kind of like he's hitting a little bit of that burnout creatively, but it's never like fully like, you know, him in a slump trying to figure out what do I do next? Yeah, because there's never a moment in the movie where he has a full downswing or he has a full like. Oh, man, like this movie thing never is. I don't know if this will work out. Like he never has doubt. We have that for modern times because they're trying to figure out how to make the blind girl think that Charlie is a rich man. Yes. And And he's adamant that he does not want to use any dialogue. He doesn't want to use talkie. Yeah. And I, I get those confused because, you know, that's City Lights. But Modern Times, which is the the movie that follows after that. He actually wrote a script for that. There was going to be dialogue in modern times, and he was going to finally transition over into sound. And then we see, you know, with that whole city light scene where they slam the car door shut and they figure out that's how we'll make her think that, you know, he is a wealthy man. So it's kind of this thing where it's like you see his aha moment and we don't have to resort to going to sound. We can, you know, still keep up with the silent pictures. And we see that like with Last Week in the Artist with George Valentine. Oh, those, you know, those talkies, they're not going to amount to anything. We've seen that with so many of these, you know, actors, directors, where it's a little bit of that fear of, you know. The new technology. The new technology. And it's like, well, you know, I've tailor made my career to just this, you know, this genre. I don't know how I'll fare going over into sound. You know, it's an interesting thing because. I guess we are just in this middle section and we're kind of like swinging wildly yeah. around. But in this, you know, middle section of the movie, Charlie Chaplin is introduced to the talking, you know, the talkies, the talking mm-hmm. pictures. And he is just so adamantly against it. And he has his like creative reasons why, because he's like, well, I don't want the tramp to ever say anything. I want the tramp to be universal. And it's dawning on me. It's like, why don't you just like play a different character? Mm-hmm. Like, why don't you, like, branch out outside the tramp? Was it a fear thing? Like, was it he a... probably could have been. Like, was he just afraid that he could only be the tramp and the tramp only works like this, so he's just never going to change? I mean, we kind of see that with um, Fairbanks when they're having the, the discussion of the Hollywood sign where he's, you know, he's getting older and it's like, you know, I've been uh the swashbuckler i've been you know zorro i've been all these great action heroes and he's like now i'm the oldest action star and we're moving into talkies what am i going to do next and it's it's kind of a sad thing and i mean the other thing is like i don't think the american public knew charlie chaplin was english and yeah. i think it would have been a awkward thing to hear the tramp speak and to, for him to have that kind of 
posh British accent that Charlie Chaplin kind of affected in his normal day-to-day life. And I think that would have been really odd for him to start talking like that as he's playing the tramp. Yeah, but I also think, you know, that's been like like in The Artist, where it's just, you know, that fear. And it's like, no, you know, people might have loved it. Like, you know, this whole time, you know. We're, we're saying that as a 2022 audience with hundreds of thousands of movies millions and billions of movies of actors with funny with fun and interesting and very complex accents he's talking about the first five years of talkies yeah i know and and there's a public image of chaplin of being this kind of all-american or maybe this worldly character i think he because what is it in modern times when he starts speaking and the tramp finally says the first words and it's gibberish Mm -hmm. and i think that's a conscious point of him being like he has no country. He doesn't exist for any one place. He is of all places. Yeah, and that's why I love his character of the tramp, and I love that, you know, he fought for him, that he could be anybody. And I mean, that's why, you know, when you look, you know, into like Chaplin's histories, in so many countries, they have statues of the tramp because he made such an impact. And it's like, yeah, he was a man of the world. He could be any race, any character. It was wonderful that he fought to keep it that anyone could, you know, be a part of his movies. And it, it is a very interesting creative decision, and it might have been rooted in fear, but in the in the movie, it's it's just so interesting how it's explained by Robert Downey Jr.'s portrayal of Chaplin mm-hmm. that I it comes off very. Um, Maybe I'm set in my ways. I know what I'm doing, so I'm just going to keep on keeping on kind of thing. Like, that's a little bit of the vibe I get. Mm -hmm. But, I mean, when he finally does transition into talkies, I guess, would you call, like, the Great Dictator section the beginning of, like, the downfall? Like, the the climax third act? Because that's when J. Edgar Hoover really, like, closes in. Yeah. I mean, this is... Is it after the Great Dictator when they have the whole, um, the baby scandal? Yes. So, yeah, I mean, maybe without the scandal, there might have been a potential to keep going. I mean, I don't I don't know how he could have topped The Great Dictator because that is an amazing movie. Yeah. Um and his follow-up uh, Monsieur Vidu, mm-hmm. which is like again again that's the movie i think that actually got him like in deep water because i think around this time this is like 1950 ish is when mystery of the do comes out and you're getting like the house on american activities board you're getting like the red scare and chaplin was monsieur verdo was 47 47 okay so we were going into it yeah because you know limelight is 52 that's another really good movie limelight's the last movie he does in america right because that's with Keaton. 52. Uh, he does a King in New York. That's in 57. King in New York, I know that's his. That's in uh, Europe. So I'm. Because okay. his last two or three were in Europe. And he does, you know, a Countess from Hong Kong. That's in 67. Jesus, that's so long in between movies. Yeah, but I mean, so it's like, you know, he was trying to work up until the very end, and but, you know, health stopped him. But, you know, yeah, I, I think the scandal with Joan Barry, I think we should finally talk about that because... This is like the the downfall last section of the movie. Yeah, because this is right before he meets Una and, you know, Joan Barry, you know, he sees her at a party and he's like, you know, she'd be perfect for my next movie. And also, 
the girl stacked, so that's why I'm kind of, you know, interested. But he finally dipped his pen into crazy. Uh, yes. And, you yes. know, we see, I mean, it's kind of good that they showed that because, yeah, that is a thing where, you know, he was interested in his romantic leads and he finally met one that was, you know, she actually had, you know, mental issues and she, you know. She she had some mileage on her that was uh, not not very uh, conducive to a healthy relationship. And, you know, I, I don't know Joan Barry's like actual life. Um, I think she was institutionalized. And then after that, no one's really sure where she ended up. Yeah. Um, but it was a thing where, you know, he, when he's regaling, you know, the their story together. He's like, you know, she was getting arrested. She was arrested for DUI two times. She was driving to my house drunk. She was showing up. And then finally, she claims that she's pregnant with this child after they hadn't slept together for who knows how long. And that's when she ends up in Hoover's office with Hoover's assistant or whoever this guy is supposed to be in the movie. And that's when they really try to settle for this court case where he is the father he has abandoned a Joan Barry and this child and he must pay even though there is you know a DNA test and he is not the father I mean there's there's also controversy even around that because they're the, like it was the man's act or something that they that, that was what actually like got him like in a lot of trouble because I guess he transported her across state lines to do illicit sexual activities it it's a law put in place to like stop mm-hmm. pimps from transporting yeah. girls across state lines, but he actually violated it. But the other thing is there's speculation that, well, J. Edgar Hoover um, doctored the whole whole thing and that mm-hmm. the Joan Barry was never like pregnant, but he knew that, so he's just going to railroad him anyway. There's also speculation that Chaplin kind of paid to get a negative blood test and that it was actually his kid. And there's, there's a lot of weird things mm-hmm. about that that, again, is not put in the movie for brevity. But it is very interesting because Chaplin, again, Chaplin's complicated relationship with women. Because he was a guy that liked that liked life a lot and he uh, dipped his pen into a lot of inkwells. We'll put it yeah, like that. Yeah, and, you know, we're having this where, you know, he's, you know, dealing with Joan Barry basically, you know, stalking him at his home. Mm-hmm. And then this is around the time that he meets Una. He falls in love and this is where we get to like the actual love story of the movie where he's like, I'm finally happy. I finally met somebody that, you know, gets me, understands me. Yeah. You know, looks like the girl I actually love. Who's been dead for 40 years. Yeah. And you know, then it's like, Ooh, now there's going to be this court case because, you know, I'm sure at the time it was probably, yeah. You know, if you do pay her a hundred thousand, she'll, she'll dip. And you know, Charlie being Charlie, is like, no, I want a court case. I want to prove that, you know, I'm right. And, you know, Una stays with him. Because this could be, you know, a moment of, you know, make it or break it, where it's just, this is a little bit too much for me. I don't know if I want to be part of this. But she stays by his side. And even when he's stuck paying for this child, the rest of this, you know, up till the child turns 21, he's got to pay child support. And she sticks with him. Yeah, it's... It's the thing where Una gets introduced. Una doesn't have a lot to do for for like the time she has on screen. Yeah, she comes on. She's another one of these um, people of great affection for Charlie. Mm-hmm. She loves him, kind of like really, really like loves him, adores him, yeah. right? 
and Charlie absolutely loves her and adores her, but we don't get a lot of Una as a character. But she's with his children. Yeah, she is. She's, she's supporting him. Loyal wife. That yeah. is her character she's playing. And this moment with the scandal, it's like, oh, no, she really loves him because she's stuck with him through this. And I'm like, okay, yeah, that's that's interesting. That's mm-hmm. I, I get that. But again, it glosses over the fact that he, that, I guess that trial went on for like a long time. Yeah. And like they get married after the trial. And like once he like proves that, you know, he's innocent or whatever, or in his eyes, he's innocent in the court of law, he's guilty. Mm-hmm. And there's a thing where like now Una's pregnant with like their first kid. Mm-hmm. And I think they, they gloss over like the last two movies he actually made in, um in his final days in America. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is when J. Edgar Hoover kind of comes to roost. You know, you, 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 um, you plan Hoover in the first act, you're going to have to fire him off in the third. Yeah. You know, Chekhov's Hoover. And I just got that. A J. Edgar Hoover. Hoover kind of sucks, you know? He does. And Charlie leaves America to go on like this publicity tour. And when he comes back, his visa is denied. Mm-hmm. And that's when he kind of gets exiled because again he's a very vocal critic of america mm-hmm. uh he's he also made a couple of very mm, not smart personal moves like he never applied for american citizenship mm-hmm. he never like really attempted to make concrete roots in the united states in a in a way that would like you can't like kick me out i live here yeah i'm from here yes he ne- he never did that and also, I this was the thing that really got him. He, he was very friendly with like known communist sympathizers and com and like socialist people in Hollywood during like the Red Scare, and that was like a no go. Like he was going to yeah. get blacklisted anyway. But I think that you know him as a person, he was just friendly with everybody. He was also a very like like worldly. I just want to talk to these interesting yeah. people. So kind of thing. you know, I think it's a thing where yeah, that may have bit him in the ass, but it's just. He was a people person, and it you don't was, think it was like a malicious thing. No, I, you don't think he was a dirty, dirty red. No, I don't. You, you sure? Yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm pretty sure too. I think he was just, a, I think he was just like a rather progressive, left leaning guy that uh, got caught at one too many parties with some not so um, friendly people. That's that's probably the vibe I get out of him. Yeah, you know, just. You talk to a lot of people, you know, word gets round and then, you know, rumors start to happen. And I think that's... They can't be the all-American Douglas Fairbanks. They can't. I still wish we got more of that relationship in the movie. Same. Fucking same. I also wish we got more Hoover, honestly, because I wanted to understand why he had such a hate on for him. Because Jagger I... Hoover had a hate on for everyone. He did. And that that's kind of weird. It's like, dude... What's your issue? Are you just that bored that you're going after celebrities? See, I get he goes after celebrity, but he fucking hated Chaplin. I mean, he had a 1,900-page file on all the alleged things that Charlie Chaplin did in his life. In the movie, again, like I don't, I don't know if it was like a far more complicated thing where it's just like, oh no, Hoover didn't like Chaplin, but Chaplin like antagonized Hoover in some way, or like, oh, you know, like. Chaplin didn't really do anything, but for some reason, like, you know, he stole Hoover's girl or some bullshit. But in the movie... He stole his vacuum. He stole his vacuum, you know, because Hoover sucks. He does. It's got to be a thing 
in because in the movie, the only explanation we get as to why Hoover hated Chaplin so much, and I think you mentioned it, is because Chaplin kind of talked a little, you know, talked back to him once at a party, like 40, 50 years prior, and Hoover just held a grudge forever. Yeah, He's like, you, you know, made me look dumb. You made you made me look foolish while I'm giving this incredibly long speech at a dinner, and then, you know, because you took a, a little bit of a jab at the immigration system, you know, I'm going to hold you to that forever and ever, and it's like, why? And But also, you know, Hoover makes a point during that dinner, you know, because he's talking about movies and the messages that they, they put out. And Douglas Fairbanks and Mary Pickford are like, what do you mean? What message? Because, you know, they're in it for, we're entertainers, we're entertaining our audience. And we have Chaplin, who's like, you know, this new star where it's just kind of like, I understand that I can make people laugh. I can make people, people cry. I can move people. And it's just, you know, I it that is interesting because Hoover is making that speech of movies are the great, you know, 20th century art form. It can communicate things and blah, blah, blah. It's like, the great new form of communication. It's He's talking about the themes and messages in movies, and he recognizes that Chaplin speaks the same language. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know what I'm talking about because I see you doing it in your movies. I want you to stop. And Chaplin's like. I have no idea what you're talking about. And, and I never will. And Hoover is like, no, you're dangerous because you, this speech I'm giving, and you already know what I'm saying because you already know the facts about it. It's mm-hmm. it's a very interesting dichotomy there. But in the movie, it doesn't explain enough as to why he fucking hated him so much. I think, honestly, I'm almost like, just make it up. Make up something where it's just like Chaplin spat in Hoover's eye once at a party or like did did, something. And and I think that's, you know, the point of it is just, you know, this man had a vendetta for really no reason. And, you know, he was just out there to make anyone's life miserable. And he finally did when he kicked, you know, Charlie out of the country. And then Una, she renounced her own citizenship so that she could, you know, be with Charlie in Switzerland where, you know, he... fathered like seven more kids but you know lived it out but you know completes the rest of his life in switzerland and um even uh paulette goddard she got remarried again and her and her husband they moved to switzerland and they weren't you know too far of neighbors with charlie and his wife so it's just kind of like you know she understood and was like you know what this is a really crappy thing that they did to him and i still have his back so you know what i'm gonna leave too i i get the sneaking suspicion that um Una probably had an understanding with Paulette Goddard, and there was probably a uh, a very romantic understanding of that relationship. I get a feeling like they probably never stopped knocking boots. No, I, I think it's just a thing where it's it's difficult, you know, that, that kind of like unspoken bond that you have in a relationship. And it's, you know, you see it with some people when they break up, they're still friends with their former partner it's just that deep connection that deep bond it doesn't have to be physical oh i'm not talking about like normal human interaction i'm talking about charlie chaplin himself because again that man stuck his pen in a lot of ink wells and yeah, i think but... he probably enjoyed uh, some ink more than others no i don't i don't i don't think i've seen that anywhere that you know they continued something in the later years but it's just more of a i don't know my uh, tinfoil hat says different yeah, you need to change that tinfoil hat. It's kind of falling apart there. <laughs> but, you know, we get Chaplin, and he lives out of the rest of, his life in, rest of his life in Switzerland. And he ends up 
finally accepting his Academy Award in 72 when he's like 80 something. Uh he's I know he's he looks ancient in in like actual pictures. I mean the makeup is like makes him look very old, but you can only make Robert Downey Jr. look so old before it gets a little weird. And they wanted someone else to play the older version of Charlie Chaplin. I think it was Nick Nolte. It was. Yeah. And I was kind of like, no, you, you can't just, you know, change the actors on us like that. I mean, for like the child version and the teenage version of Charlie Chaplin, that's understandable, you know. But once we already hit, you know, young adult to all the way up to the end of his life, it's like, no, it, it has to be that same actor. We can't just, you know. If you change, especially because they would change him in the last fucking what? 15 minutes of the movie yeah and it's like oh now i have to re re emotionally connect with a whole new like actor it's the same character but it's a whole different air about it 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 wouldn't work at all but um chaplin he gets chaplin uh lived to be 88 years old so Mm -hmm. he gets his honorary oscar in 72 he passed away in 77 oh okay so So... he would have been like um 80 Two eighty three, eighty three, right? Seventy two to seventy seven, seventy two, seventy seven, five years. Yeah, yeah, he'd be eighty three. I can do basic math. So yeah, he we see him. He's eighty three. Accepts his Oscar. They do the the, the montage. montage. I I love that scene leading up to it because you could tell that he's. Well, I mean, not that you could tell, but he's vocalizing that he's nervous. He feels like people are gonna throw tomatoes and fruit at him because he thinks that he is the social pariah and no one cares about him. He thinks he's washed up. Yeah, he thinks that, you know, all this work that I've done to, you know, make my films and put my films out there and speak to people has been, you know, for nothing. And you have Una that's very supportive and saying, you know, that's not true. You know, the people love you. And I love the scene when they're wheeling him out just to get him into a position to finally be wheeled out to the stage. And you see everybody in the building in their different costumes because this is the Oscars, so there's different skits. Everyone is running just so they could see the the montage that they're going to play. Because it's, it's Charlie, Charlie Chaplin. It's, it's Charles fucking Chaplin. Or Charles Spencer Chaplin, you know, dependent. Yeah. Uh, his middle <laughs> name was fucking, thank you very much, Charles fucking Chaplin. And but, but then we get... You know, the the montage of his career. And that's when the movie gets me. Every that, time. That's what the, It is the best. It is the most emotional beat of the movie that well, actually hits. Well, that and when he finds out that Hetty Kelly has passed away. Yes. The, the that, ending montage, though, it's, it's so... It hits so much harder. Yeah. Be- because, I mean, Robert Downey Jr. does such a good job when he finds out that she's passed away. Because you could see he is trying to control his body, but you could see it in his eyes that he is devastated. Like someone just ripped the heart out of his chest. Yeah, and he's and, and they ask him, "What are you gonna do, Charlie?" And he's like, smile. "Put on a put on a happy face." No, he just says, "Smile," and you know we we get you know smile later in the the movie, but the montage. I mean, because he has done so many films, and it's like, what do you pick? You know, to show his greatest work. And I also love that it's real Chaplin reels. Yeah. It's not recreations with Downey Jr. I mean, I love that they tried to be as spot on as they could with the recreations of uh, Robert Downey Jr. Mm-hmm. as the Tramp. Yes. But we finally get full coverage of the Tramp and his greatest shorts, his greatest movies. 
and it's and it's a thing where you know he's watching the montage he's hearing the crowd laugh and he realizes you know it it did work he's like i i actually did do something like the all the work all the pain all the suffering all the the hardships i went through it was kind of worth it like it I, I, I touched people. I well, communicated. That and, you know, we're in the 70s now. These movies were, you know, made in the 20s. People are still laughing at the beats that you want them to laugh at. It goes dead silent with the kid when they're taking the little boy away from him. And, you know, he's just, you know, pleading and crying, you know, to be reunited with his father. And you see the tears roll down Robert Downey Jr.'s face. And then we end with him sitting alone and walking off into the sunset which mirrors with the opening of this movie of him in the doorway going in and, you know, taking the, the costume off. So it's, Un- undoffing the, uh, yeah. the, tra- the tramp and it ends with him in full tramp and walking off into the sunset. Yeah. It is a beautiful ending shot and it, it goes to the whole thing. You know, Chaplin is top five most recognizable figures of the 20th century, probably in the top, 10 most important filmmakers of the 20th century i think there was, i read somewhere that the the bfi had him like in the top five directors of all time i could i could see that i mean you're putting god you're putting him up there with like hitchcock tarkovsky kurosawa kubrick um because shit. Had, yeah no he because he had such a hand in you know creating what filmmaking is and we made mention of it earlier all the control he had he made the movies he wanted to make. That's why they feel like pure auteurist visions mm-hmm. because all of him is in them. Like like the kid is very much his childhood, his pain of losing his own child. Modern times is his concerns with industrialization. Um, like uh, The Great Dictator is his, his parody of Adolf Hitler and him kind of standing up for the little guy mm-hmm. you know because he's like my brother's jewish he's making fun of jews i'm gonna stand up for like mm-hmm. like like my, my people here mm-hmm. and even with like like limelight is an incredibly personal film for mm-hmm. him it's a drama but it's him being like i'm an aged comedian and i don't think i got the fastball anymore mm-hmm. he's like i'm afraid i'm forgotten and i i bring this up because i want people to watch limelight it ends in I believe Limelight ends with Keaton, Buster Keaton and Charles Chaplin. It's the only time they were ever on screen together. Mm-hmm. And it's just them doing shtick. And it's like, these are the two... Greats. They are. Like, they are, honestly. Like, I, I bring this up, you know, it's like, oh, I really wish Buster Keaton was in this movie because I'm, I'm a Buster Keaton guy. Yeah. Uh, you're a Chaplin girl. I am. And it's a thing where Chaplin, great artist, great director... And but he knew how to do things like like sentimentality, mm-hmm. um, like very he's very schmaltzy. Honestly, he's a he's a man after Spielberg's own heart. And I mean, and he also has the eyes too, where his just his eyes could you know evoke an emotion out of you. Yes, and then you have Keaton, mm-hmm. and his whole thing was the stone face. Mm-hmm. But his and he was also a, a great director, great comedian, and his talent was the fact that nothing was too extreme. He would do anything for a gag. He's like, we might derail this train and I might die. Or I can make one of the funniest gags yeah. you will see on screen. And there's and that's like that like dichotomy, that power of those two. And they're on screen in limelight. And it's these two guys who in real life are faded. They are they are decades away from their like 
heyday. And it's this perfect culmination of like Chaplin's like, this is me. I'm a, this is, this is my life. And I think that that is why Chaplin is considered such a great director and a great filmmaker is how personal he was in his movies. Mm -hmm. And in Chaplin, this movie, it should have been like four hours long. I I still, it feels like I'm missing so much because we don't see anything from limelight. We don't see his, the real founding of United Artists. We don't see his interactions with like, fucking hundreds of people that really built and formed his life we don't see his his other brother at all we don't see eight of his kids really we don't see sydney again right sydney sydney cuts out of this movie after what like the hour and a half mark hour 45 mark somewhere in there but you know something that i've been waiting to talk about because it's something that we did recently is we don't see when he's exiled them packing up his studio right we we don't see the studio, the house being, you know, packed up because obviously he can't re-enter the country. So it's like, so who did that for him? Was it Sydney? Was it, you know, how do you go about, you know, packing up a whole person's life? That would have been a grand it would have it would have been like a pure homage to Citizen Kane, you know, where the mm-hmm. end of Citizen Kane where they're packing up all this stuff. I could imagine the montage of them just packing up the tramp outfits, them packing up the film reels, the posters, the posters, all this other stuff. That would have been a beautiful like montage of things where it's just like visually you you walk away like Chaplin's entire life, his entire being, everything he's built, his American dream has been crushed asunder, and now he is going to box it all away, and that is going to be for another. That is now his other life. Once he goes yeah. to Switzerland, he, basically when he goes to Europe, that's he's like that's that's it. You mm-hmm. know, he's like I'm I'm a new person. He never brings the tramp back. No, he never. He only does like really dramas. Honestly, after that, and it's it's a thing where when he got exiled, that was the death of the chaplain that we knew. Yeah, right. So. The movie does get that point across because you feel like there's a it's a different man mm-hmm. mostly because every time he's in Sweden after or Switzerland after that he's an old man makeup, yeah. but it I get that sense like there's separation between America and Switzerland, but that would have been great that great scene of them packing up all of his stuff, but that was Chaplin, 1992 Richard Attenborough. Well, I wasn't done making my point. God damn, you have I, a lot of points today. I, well, I, I do, you know, this is a, a movie that I love, but I talk about, you know, them not packing up his studio because we just recently went to his studio, his former studio. and You he... could have just said we went to the studio. Well, yeah, but I, I'm trying to tie that in with, you know, that was kind of something important that we could have seen in the movie because that was a big chapter of his life. I mean, that that's one of my favorite scenes of the movie is when he's driving through the orange groves and it's just his studio surrounded by nothing yeah and you know we went there for your first time this week and i think you were just kind of a little bit like in shock of it's still here well because it looks like it's from the 19 teens like yeah it's the buildings have not changed at all it looks ancient and it's a thing where it's like it's still an active studio it's the uh, jim it, henson studio it's the jim henson studio um that's why you know it would been it would have been interesting to see it in the movie transfer hands because i think it was transferred one time after he was exiled, and then after that, Jim Henson bought the studio. So, I don't know if we needed to see Jim Henson buying no, it. No, it would have been. We, we don't need to see it, but just to see that you know 
it's only been, I think, in two other people's hands apart from his. So, you know, just to see that now, you know, it's still owned by the Jim Henson studio, but it's identical to the movie. It hasn't really changed. And you see in those scenes of, you know, like when they have to go take the, the movie across the border, when they have to go take the, the kid and the reels, mm. and you see them running in and out of the doors, and you're like, you know, yeah, that was Chaplin's uh, that was Chaplin's um, office. office. That was his and then this, that was his that, that. That middle door that they have, you know, that was kind of like his music room, sunroom, where they have like all the posters and the awards. And I was just like, yeah, this, you know, this living, breathing place really was this living, breathing place that he lifted off the ground. And yeah, it's still there. It's still astonishing to see it when you, especially when you look around the neighborhood and it's just. Oh, cause it's not orange girls. It's surrounded by LA. It is, it is, it is. surrounded by Los Angeles. You know, there's, you know, a strip mall right next to it. There's houses, there's buildings. There's, there's a gentleman's club across the road. There is a, a club of that nature across the road, but it just, you know, now feels like, you know, this thing that was kind of just dropped in this neighborhood, but really it was the original thing in this neighborhood and it's still, you know, there and it's still beautiful. And just to think that, you know, so many of these great films that we just talked about in this episode were created there. Yeah, and I, it's a thing that the movie, that that whole little thing about the exiling of America, it's done in, Una comes up and he's like, Charlie, they, they've exiled you or whatever. And he's like, from, from America forever? And that's it. And then he just cuts to being in Switzerland. I would have loved to have seen... You know, yeah, the studio pack up, the house mm-hmm. packed up, mm-hmm. the studio like changing hands. I I would have loved to have seen the cementing that no, he was he was gone. There was no coming back for Christmas. Yeah. There was no all right, can I go to you know, collect my shit? There was he was gone. Yep. They had to mail him his keys. Over. Mm-hmm. End of story. It, let let's you know, let let's get into this. I I like the movie. It's a good movie. Mm-hmm. Wonderfully acted, production's great. We both have the same criticism of it. Yeah. It should be longer. It should. There is, it is, as is, it's very fast. There's so much stuff going on. They need to focus, they either needed to focus it down to a very fine point, And instead of going throughout his whole life, they focus on the most important part of his life. Mm-hmm. Or they just make, make the damn thing like three plus hours long and just get everything enough time to breathe Mm -hmm. because that middle section is so dense yeah it's so dense but the oscars seem to enjoy it yeah uh robert downey jr was nominated for best actor for this um i have the oscar uh noms if you wanted uh, to hear i would thank you because we've done this a few times in this uh in this month when people are nominated for oscars you know we want to figure out did they deserve it was this a stacked year so, Robert Downey Jr. did not win, but the other nominees that year were Denzel Washington for Malcolm X. Okay. We have Stephen Ray for The Crying Game. Clint Eastwood for Unforgiven. Oh. He he also won uh, Best Picture and Best Director for Unforgiven, so Eastwood walked out with Oscars anyway. Yeah. But the gentleman who won Best Actor for 1992 was Al Pacino for Scent of a Woman. Whew. Yeah, that's that's a stacked year. Right? Right? Like, don't get me wrong. Like, I'm looking down this list and it's like, okay, Robert Downey Jr., like, again, top three performances of your career, easily. Like, but then it's like fucking Clint Eastwood, like, basically hanging his hat of the Western. Like, he is a Chaplin-level icon. 
later level chaplain level yeah, icon yeah. sure but then it's like fucking denzel washington and malcolm x really really you're got you're gonna like line this up here and then al pacino wins for scent of a woman which i'm, I'm still going with robert downey jr deserve the oscar because you are biased i am and chaplin is a great movie and he did so much to bring this character to life and and also i probably i probably would have if I had to rank these, he's in like the number two, number three of the year easily for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's 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 a it's a little rough when you get like a great performance like this in a stacked fucking year like yeah. this. I mean, it's not as bad as um oh god, what was it when Ian McKellen was was uh, nominated for Gods and Monsters, and that list is just a murderer's row oh, yeah. of all time great cinema performances. We'll we'll get to that in a later episode. We will right. Right. Yeah, yes. you might have, you know, spoiled it a little bit. Yeah, don't worry about it. No one will notice. But the movie also, it was a very interesting critical box office success mm-hmm. or failure. Box office, bombed. A $31 million budget, $12 million box office. Yeah. But critic reception was lukewarm at best. Because mm-hmm. I think everyone had the same criticism we had. Great intention, not great execution. Because it felt too truncated. Yeah, we needed more time. More time. It has all the makings of a of a masterpiece because, that's just not there. Because the per- performances are spot on. Yes. The, the, they're, you know, knock them out of the park, you know, performances. But it's just, we needed more. It felt a little bit rushed. There was a lot of, you know, big moments in history that we missed. Mm. But overall, I love this movie. I really like it. It's a really lovely movie, because I'm not a chap. I'm not a big Chaplin guy. I like I like some of his movies. You know, what's your your favorite Chaplin movie? Uh, all time. All time. Um, if I had to watch one Chaplin movie forever, fuck. Okay, it's it's either Gold Rush or Great Dictator. Those would be my two. I really like City Lights. Mm-hmm. Modern times, I'm a, I'm like fifty fifty on. Mm-hmm. I think half half of modern times is like really great. The other half is like too vignette-y and mm-hmm. sketchy for me. But Gold Rush is a masterpiece. Mm-hmm. I think it's one of the funniest movies ever. And I think The Great Dictator is one of the best political satires ever. And fuck me, it might be key, it might not it might be Chaplin's best performance ever. Mm-hmm. Like that, those would be my two. Probably Gold Rush. Gold Rush. If I had to watch like one like. This is Chaplin, top of his game. This is the tramp. This is this is Chaplin. I'd probably put Gold Rush. Are you a um? My mine's a three way tie, and it of I'll, course it's a three way tie. I'll give you you know my explanation. Gold Rush because that is the most tramp of the tramp performances. It it is his best tramp. And then um, Great Dictator because you know it is such a hilarious movie. I love that you know he just goes for it. He, he doesn't care. He is going to make fun of him. He's like, I don't care if he gets pissed off. You know, I, I am going to, you know, be you and be such a buffoon of who you try to, you know, be as, you know, the man that we shall not name that we named earlier. I, but, I mean, also, it has one of the best scenes in cinema history. The ball. The, the globe. Oh, yeah. I, I love the scene with the globe. And it, it's so dramatic with the music. And, you know, he's just laying on his desk, just kicking the globe into the air pushing it off you know with his butt you know it's hilarious and then modern times because 
it's such a you know, strong message that he's pushing in the movie, but he also gets the girl in the movie. In all of his movies, he's more or less on his own, but it's the two of them walking off into the sunset together. And I'm like, he's finally not alone. And that's what kind of, you know, sticks out to me. That's like, he finally, you know, landed the girl. I mean, that's Paula Goddard, right? It is. And she puts on such a, a great performance in the movie. Best chaplain leading lady by far. Yes. By far. And that's, yeah, I, um, yeah, I would say, I said, you know, Modern Times my 50-50 for me. She's in the good 50 yeah. side of that movie easily. But yeah, Chaplin, is there anything more to say about the guy, about the movie? I mean, I, I feel like if we did, we'd have to break out his autobiography, oh, which I God. have, not with me, but I have it at home. Oh, really? It is a thick book. Oh, God. It, I think it's like 500 pages. Yeah, and yeah. Yeah, Charlie Chaplin, a man of few words, and then you get him talking and he won't <laughs> shut up. <laughs> Sounds like somebody I know. But if you <laughs> wanted to hear us talk a lot more, uh, what are we doing next week? Next week, Dean kind of spoiled it, but we're talking about another near and dear movie to me, Gods and Monsters. Gods and Monsters, starring Brendan Fraser for the Renaissance, obviously. Obviously. And uh, Sir Ian, Ian McKellen. McKellen who is wonderful in, like, every movie I've seen him in. It, it's got old Hollywood. It has Brendan Fraser. It has Universal Monsters. It has Sir Ian McKellen. It's it's the movie about uh, James Whale, the director of Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein, Invisible one of, Man. One of the coolest directors ever. Will this round out our... Um, our James Whale like obsession for the podcast because we've talked about Invisible Man, Bride, uh, Bride Frankenstein. Frankenstein. I feel like, well, I, we both felt like we need to talk about Frankenstein again. Yeah, that that was such an early episode. Yeah, and we really did the Bride of Frankenstein of justice. We really, you know, deep dived into the movie. So I think we need to go back and re-review Frankenstein. Yeah, I, I would so, like to go back and like just re-review Frankenstein and the Invisible Man. I'd Mo be down. Mostly because, like, I remember we did Invisible Man and, like, we kind of ran out of shit to talk about too quick. <laughs> and I and I felt bad because I love The Invisible Man. That is your movie, yes. It, I, I love it because of the Claude Rains performance. I love it because of, like, that Una O'Connor, oh, like, yeah. camp humor going on. But, it, like, even I admitted it. Like, Bride of Frankenstein's the guy's fucking masterpiece. Yeah. Like, Invisible Man's probably his greatest, um, probably his best, like, Technical, te te technical movie. Yeah. It's, 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 it's his technical masterpiece. Bride of Frankenstein is probably the most personal, like, like that is James Whale on screen. Mm -hmm. Well, we get to see James Whale actually on screen, kind of, sort of. As himself, yeah. Or uh, Ian McKellen playing the man. Yeah, but, you know, it's not like we're talking about one of his films. We're talking about a film about him. Yes. So we'll be talking about that next week. And if you want to listen to us on a different platform than you currently are, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, uh, and YouTube. Yep, you can go to our YouTube channel, The Film Vault. That is The Film Vault on YouTube. Eventually, Dean will get around to uploading slideshow versions of this podcast. So you can listen to it on YouTube. But until then, you can follow us on our social media at... The Film Club Podcast on Instagram, where we post daily stories, upcoming episodes, and random adventures we go on. And with that, we'll see you next week at the film club. Have a good week, everybody. 